Ryan, so tell me what are we looking at? Like, what do you see when you look at your house? So this, I'm told, was a worker's cottage built in, in the 1870s. I'm standing with Brian Steffens Zatai outside his house in Ohio City, the neighborhood right next to mine. Like mine, it's been booming over the past decade or so. The house is super cute, bluish green with red stair rails and a wildflower garden out front. And then I see Bart Simpson peeking out of the window. Yeah, a, a friend gave me um, a Bart Simpson gift bag several years ago, and I just thought it was cute to put it in the window as my, my security system, my surveillance, is Bart's <laughs> looking at everyone who approaches the front door. With its quirk and cuteness and history, you couldn't really distinguish this house from a lot of others in Ohio City. But it is different, because Brian himself doesn't actually own it. Or he kind of does? Or maybe I can just say it's complicated and let someone else explain. So there's a lot of different models of land trusts. Donna Gregonis is the director of neighborhood development with the nonprofit Ohio City Incorporated. She also helps run the Near West Land Trust, another nonprofit. It owns the land underneath Brian's house. You know, really, we're just focusing on making it below market value. And this is accomplished by the land trust retaining ownership of the land and then leasing that land to a homeowner for 99 years. The homeowner owns the house and everything on the house and all of those things. So the land trust owns the land. Brian owns the house itself. And the reason for that structure, and this is the MO of land trusts in general, is so a deed restriction can be attached to the title that keeps the house affordable no matter how much surrounding property values increase. Here's Brian. So I pay a conventional mortgage for the house and the land trust still has title to that land and, as Don explained, with a 99-year land lease with me and a deed restriction that it cannot be sold without this affordability component built in so that the goal is if and when I sell, it's to another income-qualified person who needs an affordable house. I can't just go and sell it on the free market. When and if Brian does sell, he also can recoup 15% of any increased value over what he originally paid for the house. The rest of the profit would go back into the Near West Land Trust, so it can keep either building or renovating houses. That's a lot of numbers, but the big picture is that land trusts try to work around a lot of the pressures of an unregulated real estate market by keeping a portfolio of houses affordable forever, no matter how much property values are increasing around them. Brian says at the time he bought his land trust house in 2003, he was mostly just grateful for the chance to buy a house he could afford in a neighborhood he liked, on his salary as the leader of a nonprofit interreligious task force. But he also loves what land trusts stand for. In terms of community ownership of property, that housing does not have to be an independent commodified thing, that there can be other models. And he says one thing he especially loves about land trusts compared to other affordable housing programs is this. When an organization raises money to build a low-cost house in a gentrifying neighborhood, it's great for the first family that moves in. But in a traditional model like that, that subsidy is lost the very first time that house is sold because it goes on to the regular market. With the land trust, that subsidy money stays with that house forever because of the land trust organization's control of the land itself. 
On the other hand, some urban planners say, unless you can take land trust programs to scale, meaning hundreds or maybe thousands of houses per neighborhood, they're unlikely to really disrupt the overall trend of gentrifying neighborhoods getting more expensive. Instead, it's kind of more like a few lucky families win the real estate lottery and get to stay where they are. Donna Gregonis's colleague, Ben Trimble, who also helps run the land trust, spoke honestly about this. He said right now, they're planning to build or renovate 70 more land trust houses over the next couple years, with 10 to break ground this year. But even if all of that happens as planned, we don't have nearly enough land or resources to do, frankly, what we need to do in this neighborhood, but we'll try to do it on every parcel that we can. Although he said with more funding and political will, the program could get bigger. Another point that Ben and Donna and lots of other Cleveland leaders are quick to make is that the land trust is only one of many ways that neighborhoods like mine and lots of others around the country are using to keep neighborhoods accessible to everyone. We've heard about a few of those strategies throughout the series, but in this episode, we're really going to dive into what's being tried and what's working and is not working. Plus, have you noticed we haven't heard from my friend and collaborator Ricky Moore for the past few episodes? There's a reason for that. He ended up moving away from the neighborhood. I'll be checking in with him, too. And plans for a new luxury apartment building have gotten a lot of pushback. Some people are asking, is that really about maintaining affordability? People who stand up and speak loudly about concerns for equity and and diversity and all these things, they often seem to be white people of means who live in unaffordable housing themselves that is often taxable. That's all coming up on Inside the Bricks, My Changing Neighborhood. Episode 7, The Land Owned by Trust. I'm walking the neighborhood with the council person for the area, Jenny Spencer, who we've heard from before, and also Bridget Kent Marquez and Kina Chappelle, who both work for Northwest Neighborhoods, the local community development nonprofit. I'm Jenny. I'm the council person for the area. Just wanted to say welcome. Thank you. The three women are out on this sunny afternoon to welcome families who've recently moved into lease purchase houses built by another nonprofit, CHN Housing Partners. Like the community land trust we heard about in the opening of this episode, the lease purchase program is another tool for helping lower-income people buy into quote-unquote hot neighborhoods. And it does that by, well, not requiring them to buy in at all. Instead, they pay an affordable rent for 15 years. But instead of that rent money going to a landlord, it goes toward building up equity in the house, as if the family were paying down a mortgage. At the end of that 15 years, the family has the option to take out an actual mortgage for whatever debt remains on the property and at a reduced interest rate. Here's Bridget Kent Marquez. And to put that in context, it really is, it's a three bedroom, two and a half bath, brand new home for $700 a month for 15 years. And then there's a mortgage at the end of those 15 years, but it's a very modest mortgage. So it does open the door to 
generational wealth building that otherwise may not have been opened. 30 houses have been built in the last year, and another 30 will be added in the next couple of years. That's on top of the dozens that have already been built over the past couple decades in the rest of the neighborhood. As with the land trust plan, not enough on its own to stop gentrification, but another drop in the bucket. Right now, we're walking blocks that are pretty far from feeling gentrified. There are vacant lots, houses with condemned signs and broken front windows. But Jenny Spencer says they're playing the long game here. We think there will be displacement pressures on the blocks that we'll be walking today. Uh, maybe not tomorrow, but in, in the relatively near future, there will be displacement pressures. With that, we get to door knocking. Is that where we're going? Yep. Cool. We walk toward a house that's practically shiny with brand new siding, brand new windows, brand new flowers in the front garden. Kina Chappelle knocks, and the woman who answers recognizes Jenny because she looked up her profile online. She wanted to know who her council person was. Oh, I love it! Yeah. I'm Jenny. It's so nice to meet nice you. Nice to meet you, Jenny. I'm Shalana. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, how do you feel about... Okay, so... <laughs> Uh, what, what brought me here was I frequented the Cleveland Public Theater. Yes. I went to the Capitol Theater. Yes. I hung out um, at El Rincon, the best food, Puerto Rican food <laughs> I've ever had. Yep. So um, when I heard about the opportunity, I was like, yeah, I'm down. And then when I got here, a lady got shot down the street. Mm-hmm. So I had mixed feelings. So I'm hopeful that This change that's spreading, it reaches this area and it sticks. So, and if for everyone else that's been here for years, they deserve to be in a a safe street. Yes. Yeah, so I'm hopeful. That's where I'm at right now. I mean, so this community isn't perfect, but we are in it together. Yeah, we're in it together. We're in it together. Jenny doesn't rush in to reassure her or tell Shalana that she shouldn't be troubled by the shooting. Instead, she talks about how building community takes work and time. Yeah. Hopefully people will find each other and connect. Yeah. And It's the most diverse part of Cleveland, if you ask me. Yeah. You know, you can tell by the restaurants. You can tell by the schools, you know. Because yeah. that is what makes that is what makes it special, ultimately, is this diverse, beautiful community we have, and we're going to be working with it together. So. I love it. Yeah. Thank you for stopping by. Oh it, it's a pleasure to see you in the community. Yeah. yeah. As I continued to walk the neighborhood with Kina, Jenny, and Bridget, I was aware that as great as the new lease purchase houses looked, they were way outnumbered by all the older houses, occupied, I guess, by longer-term residents. We talked last time about programs that could help long-term residents freeze their property taxes. But what if they need help just keeping up with the headaches of home ownership, like getting a new roof or a new paint job? This reminded me of a point my neighbor, Jamila Campbell, made when I talked to her on her porch one day, that when there's investment in a neighborhood, whether it's by for-profit flippers or nonprofit developers, it can lead some neighbors who are not benefiting directly from the investment to feeling they cannot keep up with the Joneses. Here's Jamila. I think that the pressure of what the investors who are coming into our community are doing to the homes, some homeowners do feel pressure to either fix up their home, to make it look according to whatever else is their neighbors. 
or to sell and just, just leave it as is. Fortunately, there are some programs to help with repairs. The Healthy Homes Initiative is one. The Lead Safe Home Fund is another. Both, as you can probably guess from their names, focused on getting rid of things like lead and asbestos in older houses. But I think we absolutely need more resources and better structured programs for home repair. That's Emily Lungard from Enterprise Community Partners. We heard from her in the last episode, talking about trying to freeze property taxes from longtime homeowners. She says home repair is an area that needs lots more attention in Cleveland. Programs that focus on home safety are great, she says. But if we're able to make that investment in a whole variety of home repairs, that is how we're going to keep both homeowners in their property and landlords, property owners, able to provide safe, decent, affordable homes to their renters. Emily just mentioned renters. So let's stick with them for a few minutes. Because in Cleveland... 60% of our residents are actually renters. So when we talk about providing housing stability, we have to talk about providing housing stability for renters. And the Washington Post recently reported that Cleveland, yes, Cleveland, has become one of the hottest places for out-of-town landlords to invest. That's because while it's still really cheap to buy property here in most neighborhoods, our rents are about the same as anywhere else in the country. That's a recipe for big profits for landlords. The classic model for keeping apartments affordable, it's rent control. You might have heard of it if you spent much time in New York City, for example. It's where the law tells landlords they can't raise tenants' rent more than a certain percentage every year. But rent control is not going to happen anytime soon in Ohio, says Emily Lungard. The state legislature essentially passed a preemption to rent control in the state of Ohio. This is actually little known because it just happened a couple months ago. So unfortunately, in the state of Ohio, we can't do rent control now. But there's actually a whole suite of other tools that we can still do. One of them we've talked about before, community benefits agreements. Hey, developer, we'll let you build your fancy apartments, but you have to set aside a certain number to be affordable, or at the very least, contribute to a fund so they can be built somewhere else. Developers have to sign on to a community benefits agreement now if they're taking advantage of our tax abatement program. But that's all about new housing. Helping existing renters who live in existing housing in a hot market, that's another story. Emily says we need more direct funding programs that help tenants catch up if they're falling behind on their rent. And we need to acknowledge that housing discrimination absolutely still happens, she says. Right now, in the city of Cleveland and in most parts of the state of Ohio, it's perfectly legal for a landlord to turn away a renter who might be paying their rent with a subsidy. To me, that is baffling. We advocate so hard for things like rent assistance and rent support, but then we allow the door to quite literally be closed on a renter who actually is lucky enough to receive that assistance. The best-known example of the kind of subsidy she's talking about is Section 8, now officially called Housing Choice Vouchers. It's a public housing program where renters get a voucher to pay part of their rent. If you look at apartment ads, you'll see some that say no Section 8. According to reports, refusing to take vouchers has become a way for landlords to turn away poor people, of course, but also black and brown people who use the vouchers in disproportionate numbers. So we need to work incredibly hard to provide renter justice, eliminate that kind of 
discrimination. And how do we do that? I think the first thing that needs to happen is we need to provide what's called source of income protections. And what that is, is local laws that say you cannot discriminate against a potential tenant, a potential renter, just because of how they're going to pay their rent. Actually, every other major city in Ohio now has passed source of income protections. We're still pushing here in the city of Cleveland. And also, she says, in the suburbs, where Section 8 discrimination is even more common than in the city. I want to shoehorn in one additional strategy right here while we're talking about renters. Not everyone wants to own a house. And probably not everyone should own a house because they don't have the time or desire or cash flow to keep one up. I would classify myself as one of those shouldn't own a house people, actually. I'm just lucky enough to be married to someone who should. But there's a really cool program out of a high poverty neighborhood in Portland, Oregon, that allows people to micro invest in their neighborhood without having to take on the burden of owning a whole house. It's called a community investment trust, and people can invest as little as $10 a month, less than a Netflix subscription, in a local retail building. The trust then pays dividends back to neighborhood investors every year, at an average return rate of about 8% per year, according to John Haynes. He runs the Portland Community Investment Trust. But even cooler, John Haynes says, are the benefits beyond the money. So people are reporting that they're voting more significantly on a regular basis than they did before. And it's activated their voice in the neighborhood. They're going to public meetings, they're getting online, they're writing letters, they're going to events when they didn't before. And we ask, why is that? And they said, well, I'm, I've got a stake in the neighborhood. I'm, I own that building. Another strategy that I've seen happening right here in my own neighborhood is trying to get out front of development before anything is proposed. What you're hearing right now is a community meeting that happened in November 2021 to talk about what should happen at the site of an elementary school that had recently closed down. The city of Cleveland owns the land, and because of that, they can pretty much dictate what kind of development happens here, unlike on privately owned property. So the city, along with Northwest Neighborhoods, that's the local community development nonprofit, and a private consulting firm called Free by Design, organized this meeting and some others around the neighborhood. And they asked residents, what do you want to see here? And also, what do you not want to see? The feedback will be compiled and added to a request for proposals that the city sends out to developers. Kayla Geschke from Free by Design kicks things off by talking about what she and her partner, Indigo Bishop, have heard from people at other events they've held around the neighborhood. The top thing that we heard, public access, both public or like parks and public space, but also connections to neighbors, was the number one value that came out of the survey. It's like a place to meet or interact and connect with neighbors. And that one was interestingly one that people said was a really high priority to them, but we didn't always have the met meet. Like we don't have all the spaces we would want for that in the neighborhood. I really perked up my ears at that. The idea that people want more places to connect. Some research I've seen about mixed income and mixed race neighborhoods is that having ways to interact is the main thing that keeps diverse neighborhoods diverse. In other words, it's not enough for people just to live next to each other. They have to be given space to get together and then very intentionally invited to mingle and talk to each other. After that, Kayla tells everyone to wander the room, giving feedback at different stations organized by topic, like sustainability, diversity, parks. Get your voice in on different places. There are a few pens and post-it. I'm interested in diversity, so I gravitate that way. 
One woman who's originally from New Orleans continues on the theme of needing more places for people to meet each other. I guess the first thing that comes to my mind is libraries. We're really lucky to have one. Uh, and I feel like, you know, we can't put it, I'm not advocating for another library, but the way a library looks, like when I take my kids, there are other kids, they're all different sorts of kids, and they're all using this resource. Affordability also comes up. One woman says that she'd be happy with lots of different kinds of housing, but... Not luxury or high-end housing. Do you say that because you hate rich people? Yeah, I hate rich people. (laughs) I only have time to visit one other station before the meeting comes to an end. A guy named Adam Davenport, a planner for the city of Cleveland who lives on my street, gives a PowerPoint about population trends in the neighborhood. So even in this neighborhood, we actually lost population. His numbers come from the 2020 census, which, as with every census since 1950, shows Cleveland overall continuing to lose population. Although Adam doesn't come right out and say it, the point of his presentation seems to be to remind people that we need more development in our city, to fill up some of our empty spaces, to build back up our income tax, if Cleveland is going to stop falling behind so many other places around the country. The idea of wanting to increase density in the neighborhood, to bring back people to a city that has lost so many, it's made some of my neighbors pretty angry. You need people, you want density. You see land and a place where people want to live, and your solution is to force that density on our neighborhood. We are not the solution to your population problem. Abby DeMeo lives at Battery Park, the high-end neighborhood I've mentioned a few times in the series that was built on the site of an old battery factory. We also heard from her in a previous episode where she talked about the men's recovery center that she opposed along with some of my neighbors. She's been organizing opposition against a proposal for new luxury apartments on that same site where the recovery center was going to build. This is Abby speaking at a meeting of the Cleveland City Planning Commission to discuss the proposal. If you impose this density plan without adequate infrastructure that may be so successful in other cities, it will be a failure for everyone. For one thing, she says, we don't have mass transit good enough to move all those people around. So they'll all have to drive, and that means lots of car traffic. But that point of view is not well received by the planning commission. Here's Charles Slife, a member of the commission who's also a city council person for a neighborhood a few miles west of mine. It's becoming difficult for me to differentiate between legitimate criticisms, concerns, versus just a a larger nimbyism. A larger nimbyism. NIMBY, if you may remember from a previous episode, stands for not in my backyard. The idea that some people will oppose just about anything new in their neighborhood because they want to keep it exactly the way it is. I see hypocrisy in the talking points, you know. It's if we are worried about affordable housing, you know, then we should be creating more housing. Creating more supply causes prices to go down. And and just bluntly, and I'm going to lay it out there, it seems that the people who stand up and and speak loudly about concerns for equity and, and diversity and all these things, which are important, good topics, uh, but they often seem to be white people of means uh, who live in unaffordable housing themselves that is often tax evaded.
The proposal ended up being tabled at that meeting. As of the time this podcast is being released, it's still in planning limbo. But what Charles Slaife said about the people who do that reacting being mostly white people of means, that's something that I have also noticed again and again. Even that community meeting from a few minutes ago, almost everyone who turned out to that too was white and apparently middle class or above. Hi, my name is Malo Andre Hudson. I'm the Dean of the School of Architecture at the University of Virginia. I first heard Malo Andre Hudson speak at the City Club of Cleveland in 2017. I was super impressed with his thoughtfulness about neighborhood change and gentrification, both in that speech and in his book, The Urban Struggle for Economic, Environmental, and Social Justice, Deepening Their Roots. So I reached out to him and asked, how do we give everyone in a neighborhood more direct say in what's happening to the place where they live? I've never met a community that's been underserved or underinvested in and say, I don't want any investment. I've never heard that. (laughs) Someone may be out there can prove me, but I've never heard that. I've heard people say, I want investment. I just want to be at the table to determine what kind of investment. Do I need another Starbucks or would I want you to invest in the mom and pop that's already been there? And how do you include people more in those conversations? Because the typical tool for a planning process to include people is let's have a public meeting. Well, that's great, but not everybody can come to a public meeting. Not everybody has the time, the resources, the childcare, the fill in the blank. I think one way to really include people is, you know, a bunch of my career has been around community development, community engagement. And the, the foundation of that is community organizing. Community organizing means you knock on people's doors, you talk to them, find out what's important to people. When you see investment in infrastructure and not people, I tell, can tell you those people are going to be gone soon. Right? I've seen it over and over. Bike lanes, dog parks, uh, rail lines, all those things are wonderful. I don't think anyone will disagree with it. But when you're not investing in people and investing in their well-being and their, their, in their capacity to come together or the institutions that will bring people together, it creates a problem. So this is the central question, I feel like, of my podcast. Like, is it possible? Because I feel like my neighborhood is at a really great point right now where it does still feel welcoming to a lot of people. Can you keep a neighborhood in that place? Or once the train has started to leave the station, it's gone. That, that, that is the, uh, you know, I think if you could solve that, you would get the Nobel Prize, I think. Uh, that is the challenge. <laughs> That is an ongoing challenge to say, can we see neighborhoods going through change and try to keep the neighborhood also intact and allow for this new growth, but also at the same time being able to adjust. What I'm going to say to you is I think it's if we focus on the process of engaging people, we have a better chance of getting to that point. And some research backs up his optimism. One study found that integrated neighborhoods, neighborhoods with a mix of races, are more stable now than they were 30 or 40 years ago. For at least one person, though, the question of whether my neighborhood or any neighborhood can remain welcoming for all has become a moot point. You know, truthfully, in the midst of me moving and everything, the last thing I wanted to talk about was West 76. I hadn't caught up with Ricky Moore, my friend and sometime collaborator on this series, for weeks leading up to the production of this episode. We'd sometimes make plans to talk or get together, but it wouldn't work out. Then, just a couple weeks before the podcast launched, I found out why. He and his mom and his nephews moved away, and he didn't really feel like talking about it. I didn't want to. I didn't want to 
think about it. It was just a very, it was just very strange. I had not had to move off of that street since I was a child. So, but it taught me a lot. It taught that whole experience taught me so much, even about my capabilities, stepping up as an adult and taking control of my life. You may remember that Ricky had talked about wanting to move from the very first time I met him in episode one. Not because he couldn't afford to live here anymore, but because this just didn't feel like the neighborhood he'd grown up in and loved anymore. But as things turned out, his landlord did raise the rent on him a lot, which ended up providing the fuel for a decision he'd been leaning toward making anyway. I mean, I totally get that you didn't want to talk about West 76 for a while. I don't know. Are you saying that we fell out of touch for a while because of that? We did. And it was difficult to like to articulate it. One subject, which is kind of the vein of this experience for me anyway. Do I, do I want to talk about this? Do I want, I, I mean, I don't want to become angry about it or like anything like that. Because yeah. my home, my environment is such an important thing to me that I don't feel like I was kicked out, but I know that a lot of people that I know did and probably will experience that. Ricky ended up finding a place for his family to rent in a neighborhood called Clark Fulton, a couple miles south of me. It's a historically Hispanic neighborhood that's been wrestling with gentrification pressures of its own in the past few years, though it's earlier in the process than my neighborhood. But I'm very grateful because I'm in the process of buying this house, which is awesome. I am still going to be able to achieve all the things that I want to do and do it in the city that I, that I have always lived in and that I love. And the main thing is that I don't want my mom to have to move again. I want a place for my nephews and my family to always be able to come to. Ricky, when you think back on working on this podcast with me, what do you hope comes of it? I just hope that people understand where someone like me is coming from. And this is the place that I grew up where you lived over here because it was affordable. There was a school there, there was a grocery store. It was everything that you needed. There's a library, there's, you know, your corner stores, your liquor stores. And then now it's like been taken from the people that made it function for so long. And now we are slowly but surely being moved out of the neighborhood. So, Ricky, do you think the neighborhood should have stayed only affordable? Or do you think there should have been more effort to keep it a mix? Or I think it should be a mix. But I don't know. Because in the, the, I feel like in the early parts of it, that's when you ran into problems. Because you have these people coming in and complaining about things that happened in the city. You leave your door unlocked, you are likely to get broken in. So someone like me is like, duh. And then, and then someone like them is just like, what's going on? We've got to clean these streets up. And well, you know what I'm saying? So maybe, I don't know. I don't think, I think there's a reason why there are always people in this side and people on that side. Because, you know, you get these lifestyles and stuff. Usually um, conflict comes out of that. I'm hearing a complexity in Ricky's words that I also heard and talked about a few episodes ago, when I interviewed people who'd already left the neighborhood. He has some resentment about what's happened, but he also doesn't see himself and doesn't want to be portrayed as a victim. I was actually happy to leave when I left. And I would sometimes think, like, why do, not, why, why do I not feel 
anything. This place where I grew up my whole life, I don't even think about anymore. And I think it's because it was just time to leave. I didn't recognize the area anymore. And I'm happy to be back around people who work in the city of Cleveland, that their kids go to Cleveland schools. I'm happy that my nephews can ride bikes and hang out with kids that go to the same school as them. And I don't know, it feels like home. It feels, I, I, thought, I never thought that, that would happen, but it did. And I love it. It's so tempting when you're talking about a place or a person or a phenomenon or anything really to reduce it to being good or bad. This city is successful, that city is not. This person is kind, that person is not. What's happening in my neighborhood is great, what's happening in your neighborhood is terrible. But statements like that are never the reality. Cities are successful and unsuccessful in different ways. Most people are both kind and unkind. What's happening in my neighborhood is great and terrible and everything in between. After working on this podcast for the past year plus, I still love where I live. I love that it's dense and urban, but not far from nature. I love the smells of fish stew simmering and the sounds of opera mixing with hip hop. And I love the old houses and factories that provide a constant visual reminder that this place has been here a lot longer than me and will last a lot longer than me too. Most of all, I love how I've been able to meet so many great people here. The younger ones, the older ones, the black, white, and brown ones, the rich ones and the poor ones, and the ones who are somewhere in the middle, like me. At the same time, I don't like what I've heard from some of my neighbors, particularly those who are renters or who are older or low income, which, if I had to boil it down, is that their continued presence here isn't particularly valued. The message they hear is, if you can't keep up with a $750,000 house flip across the street, as my neighbor Jamila put it, or buy your house and then keep up with the ever-rising property taxes, you'll have to leave. And most likely, it'll be a quiet leaving, like Ricky's. No fanfare, no farewell party, just a fleeting absence, soon to be filled. One thing I'm aware of is that I wouldn't have been aware of Ricky's leaving either if it weren't for working on this podcast. This project gave me a reason and a timeline for actually going out and meeting neighbors who had different perspectives from me and who I wouldn't have met otherwise. That's going to be the real challenge from here, to keep doing that. Inside the Bricks, My Changing Neighborhood is an IdeaStream public media podcast. It's written and reported by me, Justin Glanville, and edited by Mike McIntyre, IdeaStream's executive editor. Sound design and production are by John Nungesser. Thanks also to producer Drew Mazius. Our director of strategic content initiatives is Natalie Pillsbury. Mark Rosenberger is our chief of content. Our music is by local musician Aaron Snorton, with additional music from Ketza, Olizana, Chad Crouch, John Watts, and The Stoop from the Free Music Archive. Visit us online at ideastream.org slash inside the bricks. There's a lot of ways to connect on the site. Like you can sign up for a newsletter with extra stories and thoughts that didn't make the podcast. Or you can take our audience survey to tell us what you think and let us know about things we're missing or that you want us to talk about. Until next time. <laughs>